0: sort of begin with a conclusion, which is not what you should do, Um, but normally when I teach or I preach through a series of this, it's over a period of several, several weeks and you begin by going back to the fact of the sinfulness of humanity and follow through in the bankruptcy uh, of the humanity to accept Christ like I was before I started searching the scriptures and God used the word of God in the hands of the spirit of God to convert me. But um, all of that background is the fact that man is absolutely thoroughly depraved. Uh, he has no ability in and of himself to come to Christ. And, and then I channel that through to how God provides for us, who he's called <clears throat> to disseminate the gospel message and to give out the good news, uh, knowing that we're impotent medics strewn out on a battlefield of casualties all around us. And, and yet he provides those sufficiencies which we need when we recognize our own weaknesses. And then the culmination of that is how we share all of that uh, with people all around us that need biblical truth for transforming lives, uh, giving them new life, or encouraging them to persevere through the Christian life. So this is a summary of the church's responsibility of biblical truth communications of all varieties, Uh, not just witnessing but maybe having a casual conversation, trying to help a friend, Uh, in a particularly difficult situation. So whatever context we're in as members of the body of Christ, uh, this is how we ought to be doing it. Uh, and Not try to pattern man's ways or our own ways, uh, but to do it God's way. So this is going to be the summary now of biblical truth communications. And and the bottom line is relax and share. And I know a lot of people get uptight. Um, I've noted even in the first service that Looking around after three days, there are more rugged people here that are individualist because it is, quote-unquote, corny license plate, the last frontier. And, and so they're like, I, I can go out there and take a stick and beat up a grizzly or something like that. Uh, but there, a lot of them are professing Christians and say, well, have you shared the good news with your next-door neighbor? Well, I, I'm scared. Well, they wouldn't say that. But the bottom line of the fear of man uh, is that snare that the Bible talks about And it prohibits us from doing what Christ has called us to. He doesn't just call us to have our own personal salvation, uh, but to share it with others, to help other members in the body of Christ uh, through crises in their life and all kinds of contexts for ministering to one another. So relax and share is the theme. And and it's sort of like Nike where the old commercial was just do it. Because it's a command. Christ has called us through the Great Commission of Matthew 28. And let God take care of the results. We, if we think we can produce results, that's a part of our problem, because we cannot produce any results. It's only God working through us, understanding, we understanding our own inadequacy, and that he can use the words from the word of God and empower those to change people's lives. Now, a lot of people take the other route, and that's a, a misunderstanding grossly. For example, uh, ideal ideal in academic circles where they construct whole methodologies based upon uh, uh, a misunderstanding of 1 Peter 3. You don't have to turn there, but let's, just let me read the verses and I'll show you what they do with them. Uh, it says in chapter 3, verse 14 of 1 Peter, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed, and do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ, set him apart, make him especially in a holy place in your thinking, as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense, and it's just simply an answer, a response to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile you, good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The context here is a church in persecution and and they were being persecuted severely, and some of them were being put to death, more of them were being put to death day by day and, and what this text is saying is not become an academician, a brilliant scholar, uh, become somebody that can argue with those people out there to defend yourself, and become like a defense attorney uh, and argue for Christ to defend the Christian religion. That's not what that's about. It's very practical. These people were laying their lives on the line, and they weren't great, uh, bold, rugged individualists. They were people that were simply standing up for the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified and the fact that he had rescued their souls from hell. So they were giving an answer for those people and saying, I don't understand this. You know, just recant. Forget it. I mean, why do you want to go to death? Why do you want to be burned at the stake or something like that? So you just simply give an answer, depend upon God, and let God take care of the rest of it. So that's not a technical passage of professionalism or anything like that. So there's a whole lot of other passages just like that. And we must not, therefore, be relying upon any kind of prideful proficiencies, any kind of self effort and self reliance. But what we must do is to have a humble dependence. A Proverbs 3, verses 5 and following kind of humble dependence, uh, where we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, without reservation. And we do not, even for a modicum of a second, nor for a, a part of a gram on a scale, rely on our own understanding. So we need this humble dependence upon God, knowing that in ourselves, we are absolutely hopeless and helpless to con- do, produce any kind of eternal results. So, in humility, this allows us to recognize that our total dependence upon God and his all-sufficient word is primary. We're not relying on ourselves, but we're relying upon God and his word, the effectual word. Then we share with needy people the Bible's life-changing answers. We give an answer. Uh, And and that's clear, just give the news out. Then we recognize that only the Holy Spirit can produce results, and therefore we can relax and let God take care of the rest. And then he does his business his way, and we're not trying to do it our way, which could be a total disaster, and we're going to see from the text we're going to, it would end up as a disaster, and Paul shares that testimony with us. So with that sort of as a thumbnail sketch in the background, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. Let me read the text, and I'm going to give you a little bit of background here. Paul says in one of 1 Corinthians, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my communication were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Now, let me set the stage a bit. In Acts chapter 16 through chapter 18, we see after that Macedonian vision that Paul heard calling him into Europe for the first time, that he went into Philippi. You remember there were women there, by the way, Liberty was there, she got saved and regenerated and others with her. And yet, almost instantaneously, right after that, the Jews started hounding him because he was preaching the good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what happened is they pushed him out of Philippi and you know he ended up with bloody backs with Barnabas and and the jail and then finally released from there down the road to Thessalonica. He was only there for about three weeks and the Jews were after him again. They shoved him down the road to Berea and yet those were more noble because they searched the things of the scripture to see if the things that they were speaking, uh, Paul and Barnabas, were true. And then he went to Athens and then Corinth and at Athens, this is interesting, at Athens, Paul encountered the intelligentsia. Uh, All the wise people gathered on Mars Hill, on the Areopagus. And, And one of the things you might think is that when Paul had that opportunity, he was going to pull out the big words and all the fancy rhetoric and all that logic and everything else and say, I can take these guys. You know, they're brilliant and everything else, but I want to show off my brilliance. Well, Paul, you can show off all the brilliance you want, but that's not going to lead anybody to Christ. That's not going to engage the sufficiencies of God that uh, convert people, that take stony hearts out and transplant hearts of flesh in that respond to God. So this is the context here. And, and what was happening here, you have two countercultures. Uh, you have this culture that was in Corinth and was had been in at Athens also, uh, where they were all embroiled in all this kind of philosophy and different varieties of it, sometimes mergings of several varieties of it. So, Paul was in a countercultural situation. And guess what? So is Anchorage. Just walk out there, look around. Uh, anybody that truly believes the Lord and is trying to live a godly life, you are countercultural big time. You're, you're not in tune with that. There are churches that are trying to get in tune with it that claim to be evangelical. That is a tragic loss because they're really not evangelical. So, you have to be very, very careful in this realm. So, we live in a countercultural environment also, just as Paul did when he came to Corinth. Also, there were two wisdoms, bucking heads here, you know, like rams doing duel in the mountains there, boom, like this. The wisdom of men, which is a pseudo wisdom, it's not the real deal, and the wisdom of God, which is pure and true wisdom. And James even talks about these two wisdoms in chapter 3 of his epistle, verses 13 through 18. Because the wisdom of man that Paul's going to expose here is absolutely something that's demonic in nature. But the wisdom of God comes down from God above. It's the wisdom that we desperately need. So we've got this countercultural demand going on here, and we also have this element of the two wisdoms in contradistinction with one another. Now, as we get into these verses, we're going to compare the setting of them uh, as we go through one at a time. But In this passage, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, what Paul is doing is he's giving to us four personal disclosures that reflect the biblical pattern for doing God's work God's way, not supposedly doing God's work trying to do it our way. And he said, you better not do that. I have committed myself never to do that. So these are four very personal disclosures of Paul on his whole total ministry outlook on how we're to do God's business, and it must be in God's way. Now, going back to verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Well, he did come to them, (laughs) having gone through that gauntlet all the way from Philippi, uh, through Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens, and now here, and again, I'll be honest with you, I'd have said it's time for R&R. I've been beat up enough, and, you know, Lord, I need a break from sharing the good news of the gospel, and, you know, just give me time to catch my breath. But he didn't. He got right to work, and he disseminated what God had commissioned him with. So, in verse 1, this contains Paul's follow-up disclosure regarding his commission. So he did come back, and that ties into his commission. You say, well, he was an apostle specially commissioned. That's true. Acts chapter 9, going down the road, meeting the risen Christ, blinded eyes, uh, and, and all of that hearing the fact that he had been persecuting Christ, which was Christ's body of the church. And then commissioned as the apostle to the Gentiles and sent out. And that goes back and it picks up here the fact in verse 17 of chapter 1. And it goes back to the fact of how he did not come. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2, again, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. He didn't come with that which is supersedes, extends beyond, is higher than, uh, is the loftiest of speech or wisdom, or the highest of rhetoric and reason, or eloquence and intellect, or oratory and argument. Arguing like men would argue as legals and everything else. So he said he didn't come like that. So he says, I did not come to you like that. Why, Paul? I mean, it seems like that's what they would want. In a minute, we're going to talk about what they really would want. But he never gave them what they wanted. He had to give them what they needed because their eternal destiny was dependent upon it. But look back at verse 17, chapter 1. He said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So his commission is essentially preach the gospel, announce the good news. That's the essential word that's used here. Proclaim, announce the good news. And you might say, well, that is the commission. Yes, that's the lead-off part of the commission of Paul, but it doesn't stop there. He goes on to qualify why it is that he didn't come to them with the superiority of speech or of wisdom. But he came to preach the gospel, and Christ commissioned him, as you do this under my headship, me being the supreme savior, commissioning you, God now, exalted and resurrected, not in cleverness of speech, not by means of, or not with, literally, wisdom of word. And the same two words that we found back in chapter 2, verse 1. Not with superiority of word or of wisdom. We say, well, why, I wonder. Well, Christ told Paul why. You're to announce the good news, but you must not do it your way. You must do it my way, not in cleverness of speech, not in word wisdom, even though that's what the people wanted. So that, or in order that, the cross of Christ would not be made void. You see, if you went out to preach the gospel, but did it your own way and argued with people with your own resources and engaged them on your own intellectual level... There's this possibility, which is really a probability that that cross of Christ, the only thing that can save and sanctify, would not have its power and effectuality. It would be made void. You would evacuate the only thing that saves men by doing what you say is his business your way. So Paul had to make this decision here on how he did not come, and it ties back to that commission. He didn't come with human tactics, but he did come... Back in his commission with a divine proclamation. Notice how verse 1 in chapter 2 continues. Proclaiming, announcing to you the testimony of God. So he's preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming that good news. He's doing all these things of simply taking the news of the goodness of God in the gospel. Of giving the death of his son and and the resurrected son and the power and all of that. To go and convey it to others that are desperately needy. And you must not do that with cleverness of speech because it can evacuate the only thing that can save. So we have this as Paul's commission. He's following up on it. He's reminding us of that. And again, yeah, he had an Acts 9 commission as a unique apostle to the Gentiles. And, and the apostles end uh, after John died in Patmos or after Patmos. And, and we know that from Ephesians 2.20. You say, well, how can we take this as a precedent for us? Well, we have our commission Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And the principles tie back into all those implications of that. So we need to go back and look at our lives and look back at how Christ has commissioned us to discipleize all nations, individuals from all nations. And that is what we have parallel to Paul given his commission here. And we better do that not man's way, not through ingenuity and self-effort and any kind of intellectualism, but we better do it God's way because If we don't, the possibility or probability really is you're going to take the only thing that can save people and make it null and void by trying to do God's business your way instead of his way. Now, in verse 2 of chapter 2, this contains Paul's undaunted disclosure concerning his content. He's going to focus more on content or subject matter. He had made a decision concerning this content, and he had this decision to make. And we need to make a similar decision. Paul said, for I determine to know nothing among you. To know nothing among you. Now, it's hard for you to understand that these words are buzzwords. Because a philosopher that would come into Corinth, for example, and he wanted to gain a crowd of hearers, the first thing he would do, and this is documented by extra-biblical literature, the first thing he would do is say, I know something, ooh, ooh. What's this brilliant man know? Let's go hear him. Paul said, I walked into town. I determined to know nothing among you. Wrong methodology, Paul. I mean, you're not going to get a crowd like that. You've got to be careful here. No, he made this decision concerning his content, and we also must make that decision. And by the way, it's interesting, back in Athens, Paul, as he was dealing with those Athenians on Mars Hill... Luke has this little parenthetical comment in Acts 17, verse 21, that every day these people would be down to the marketplace or someone else to see if there's anything new. What's the latest philosophy? Who's the newest intellectual in town? Uh, Who's going to entertain us with their brilliant minds? And so here's Paul, next town, for I determined to know nothing among you. So what did he do? He eliminated all that kind of human attitude and action there. He eliminated human philosophies doing it man's way. But notice what he elevated. With the little word except, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The exceptions are the person of Christ and the work of Christ. The two things that are essential to the gospel that God uses to save people and to sanctify them. And you still say, I'm still a little skeptical, because I've been reading books out of the Christian bookstore. And they're saying, you've got to do it this way. You have to sort of take surveys and understand your area, what you're going into, who your neighbors are, what they're like. And you need to accommodate to that. Paul didn't accommodate, because he knew that he was commissioned to do God's business God's way. And you say, Paul, this, this is bad, I mean... We're supposed to follow this. It doesn't make sense according to all modern methods that we're being taught. Well, just pick up that context from chapter 1 again. Uh, Picking up again verse 17. And a lot of people would say, wrong method. You're going to fail, Paul. Verse 17 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Verse 18. For the word of the cross, the message of the cross of Christ, is foolishness, silliness, stupidity. Uh, We get our word moronic from this Greek word. So the word of the cross is moronic to those who are perishing. But to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now that quote from Isaiah is now followed up by a taunt, God taunting through Paul here, verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? In other words, all those people that the Corinthians would have been drawn to. Okay? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, the stuff of the gospel, the content of the gospel, to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for signs. Paul knew that, but he didn't accommodate, because that would make the gospel null and void. Yeah, I know, Jews asked for signs, and Greeks searched for wisdom. That's what they were all entertained by. But we preach Christ crucified, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Stick to the subject matter only that can convert people and to mature them in Christ. Yeah, to the Jews a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul here gives this undaunted disclosure concerning his content or subject matter. And his decision relating to it, uh, he had to make up his mind about it, his discrimination concerning its content. What he eliminated was all human philosophies, all of man's ways, and what he elevated was the person of the Savior and the provision of the Savior. And we need to do the same thing. We've got to come and make up our minds with a Matthew 28 19, 20 commission to say, I really don't know anything among you, but this I do know. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, a little aside here, um, Johnny's brother was at Master Seminary before uh, he came, and uh, that's why I was still teaching there. And John MacArthur got long laryngitis one time, and he asked me to fill in. They were having a rally of all the, the Bible studies in the L.A. area that we had men from the seminary teaching. And so they brought them all in, and of course these are the university students, and they want to banter and all the rest of this kind of stuff. So what I did is about 15 minutes to throw out all the big words and all the rest of that. And they're going like this, you know. And Yeah, I I know what that word means and all the rest of this. And then, then I got to a point that was strategic. And I said, now let me give you the bottom line. Let me tell you where I'm going. You ready? Write it down. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's it. Huh? That's it. And shocked, some were saying, smiled, and others were saying, yes, I know that to be true because God did a work in my heart. That's where the power is, okay? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, in verse 3, we ought to all take heart here because we get a lot of conceptions of the Apostle Paul that, that he was one, trained in Gamaliel, and he was so bold and everything else, and he took Peter on eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose and everything else, and and he could do anything, anywhere, and all the rest of that. He shows how weak and dependent he was, and how fearful he was in the right sense of the word, okay? So in verse 3, this contains Paul's candid disclosure about his dependence. He was inadequate for gospel ministry. It has nothing to do with his So-called weak eyes, and he had malaria, or something was sick, or whatever this is. This has nothing to do about that, about him coming to Corinth and having a bellyache or something. This has everything to do about the awesomeness of the glory and the guts of the Christian ministry. And that's why he says here, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Now, you keep your finger here, but I'm going to go back to the passage that Jeff read this morning in the scripture reading. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we learn more about what that means from these texts. In 2 Corinthians 2, beginning at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and manifests through us the sweet aroma of knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. In other words, we're proclaiming the gospel truth, and what really is happening on this one side of those who are perishing, it makes them more highly accountable before the ultimate judgment seat. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. And Paul shows his weakness and his transparency here, and he just says, And who is adequate for all these things? And he'd be the first to raise his hand. Not me. Not me, Lord. But then drop down to chapter 3. Verse 4. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not in ourselves. We're not adequate. There can be no confidence in ourselves. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God. Who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not a letter but of the Spirit. For the letter kills. But the Spirit gives life. So Paul knew in ourselves, there's no adequacy. That's why he was with them in weakness and trembling and everything else. Because these are heavy-duty things of life and death. Life to life and death to death. I'm going to read just a little bit from 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians to put it in perspective also for ministry. Chapter 10, Second Corinthians. Paul says, Though we walk in the flesh, though we carry on our lives with the limitation of creaturely weakness... So it has no negative context necessarily, just limitation, creaturely weakness. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war, we don't carry on our ministries as measured by according to the flesh. We don't rely on our own resources. That's not our standard of operation. So we do not war according to flesh, for the weapons of our, war, our warfare are not of the flesh, But divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. And so he's talking about here, it's not in us. Not in us. So weakness is a good thing in recognizing it. Because that shows that you need to be thoroughly dependent upon God. Where the power comes from. One more from the 12th chapter of his testimony in 2 Corinthians. Just giving you some background here. Because in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 12, familiar verses, And he, that is Jesus Christ, said to me, that's Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. For power, true power, divine power, is perfected in weakness, not in arrogance, not in self-might or anything like that. So Paul said, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that testimony comes up again and again and again throughout the epistles of Paul. And it comes up here in the light of the awesomeness and the overwhelming responsibility of just being mouthpieces for God. He tells them once again in verse 3 of chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. I was with you. That is, when I came to you, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Because this ministry of the gospel is from life to life and death to death. And and I'm not adequate for it. Therefore, I must be thoroughly dependent. So this is his candid disclosure about his dependence. He was inadequate for gospel ministry. And if he was, how much more we, and how much more should we follow his pattern on what he relied on? That is, the Spirit of God, using the words from the Word of God, to take gospel truth and deal with people's hearts. Now, in verses 4 and 5, they sort of go together. And this is this packaging here of a panoramic disclosure regarding his method of ministry. It sort of wraps up everything that he's been dealing with, piece at a time here. And it's conveyed in verses 4 and 5, respectively, uh, by two contrasts, strong negative buts in between. So it's this, but that, this, but that. So it's a power-oriented contrast in verse 4, and then a purpose-oriented context, uh, contrast in, in verse 5. And, and they just flow from 4 into 5. The power-oriented one moves right into the purpose-oriented one, very, very crucially here. This is, in this case, in a panoramic disclosure regarding the method of his ministry on how he was doing God's business as God's way because of his commission, the impact of that method was seen in verse 4. First of all, he again rehearses the fact that his method was not that which was common to mere men. And my message and my substance. So you have the element here of the teaching, the communication, and the content here were not again another negative, were not in persuasive words of wisdom. Because of the commission not to do it that way. And by the way, the persuasive words of wisdom are very closely tied to a word that's used by Paul in warning the Colossians in Colossians 2 verse 4, which is like a lawyer's slick persuasion of fancy words, an eloquent argument. And he said, that's not me, because my communication and my content were not in persuasive words of wisdom. But a strong contrast, contrastingly, in the demonstration or the proof of the spirit and of power. And he takes two important teachings of the sufficiencies of God that provides, provides for us who are insufficient. Of the spirit of God, like in Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the spirit, God wields his word which he has given, and he applies it. And the kind of dynamic power of Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God unto salvation. Both Jews and Greeks alike, So he said, here it is. It was a power that was demonstrated. It was proof in the pudding, so to speak, of the Holy Spirit and the power of the word of God. And why was that so important for you, Corinthians? Verse 5. His method did not leave the trust of precious people grounded on a finite foundation of man's reasoning, man's arguments that would ultimately crumble. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men on that pseudo-wisdom of men, which you think is wise, but isn't. But it would rest on the wisdom of God. So that your faith, the eternal outcome of your souls, Corinthian believers, would not rest on that foundation which would crack and crumble. And, and it came to me the first way. I'm learning a little bit about around here and the bridge to nowhere that is somewhere. Um, and, and even some other bridges they've talked about. And, and you can't build anything on that silt out there. I mean, it just won't work. And so it's like... If you did, or you tried to do, God's business by man's way, it would rest on the silt. And that bridge would go to nowhere, for sure. Eternally. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men. So he's reminding them that he did not leave them to the trust, the trust of precious people, to those philosophers and somebody that was saying, oh, we're we're of God, but doing it our way, and we're entertaining you, come to us. But contrastingly, on the power of God. The power of the Spirit of God using the effectual words from the Word of God to transform lives, to give new births. John chapter 3. And also to produce in them all that's necessary for the process of sanctification. So, these are the four personal disclosures by Paul reflecting the biblical pattern for doing God's business God's way. And again, there's implications and applications to us. But through it all, I think you see that tone of humility, which we emphasized at the outset. And that biblical humility is so essential. And it should consistently drive us, if we're truly humbled by the standard of God delineate in his word, that should drive us to employing God's supernatural weaponry of the word of God, attended by the spirit of God, and leaving the results to God and getting out of the way and doing what we're supposed to do. Just be simple messengers and mouthpieces for the good news or helping somebody else as a brother and sister in Christ. And just don't feel intimidated or anything like that. We all have great limitations, but allow God to use the sufficiencies he's given to insufficient people to accomplish his results. And by the way, someday, you might experience also what Paul experienced, for example, with the Thessalonians. That was one of those congregations that... He didn't have as many headaches as he did with the Corinthians and Galatians. But it says in First Thessalonians 1, this is what happens if you do God's business God's way, you can reflect back on it. Paul said, for our gospel did not come to you in word only. Not just the words that we we're proclaiming out of our mouth. Okay? Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also, here it is, in power and the Holy Spirit. Right back to that testimony we just left. But it came to you in the power and in the Holy Spirit, and here it is, with full conviction. It's the conviction that God accomplishes with his powerful sufficiencies working on human hearts. And we're just conduits, messengers. And therefore, forget the fear of man. We realize our dependence. We understand that humility ought to drive us to do his business, his way. And then, whatever the outcome is, it's not up to us to produce the results. It's to the glory of God, whatever he does. So I pray that you would um, take heart of some of these examples from Paul and his disclosures and go out the doors and put them in application and feel more relaxed. Just relax and share. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we think we need an arsenal even to talk to somebody that's sitting...